The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast series created by Mercedes Lackey and Steve Lippin. Fading Echoes, Part 1. Written by Steve Libby. Read by Veronica Jaguer. By day, the Echo Detention Facility hummed with repressed energy. Metahuman prisoners could not be afforded the same liberties as conventional convicts. No exercise yard, no recreation room, no library. Even the classic prison pose, leaning against the bars with hands useless and dangling, was denied them. The reinforced steel doors contained grills that afforded a limited view of the corridor. Some deemed it cruel. Most considered it necessary due to the unique nature of the metahumans. Metapowers were, by law, a lethal weapon that had to be registered with local law enforcement and the government, same as karate black belts or anyone trained to kill without weapons. But ordinary criminals could be disarmed. Eisenfaust paced his cell. After his death-defying escape from the clutches of the Thule Society, confinement was maddening. He imagined he could hear his broken bones re-knitting themselves under the plaster cast. For days, he had tried to block out the prison chatter that echoed up and down the corridor in his wing. These men and women were scum, plain and simple. In the Germany of his time, sixty years ago, he would have had the responsibility of apprehending criminals in distance. To be interred with them even by choice, grated on his nerves. The grill at the foot of his door slid open to admit a tray with his lunch. Eisenfaust had to admit that the prison food Echo served was of higher quality than he had expected. Perhaps it helped to quell the tempers of the isolated prisoners. Guard, he said. I have dated for your commanders to speak to me for far too long. There is Yankee pride. Out doing his job. The guard answered, as though he were gracing a beggar with a quarter. Thy has he not contacted me? I told him I have critical information, a matter of national security. Hand pressed against the door, he perversely longed for the typical iron bars of a jail, as though they were a luxury. Sure you do. The guard tapped a button with his foot. The serving grill slid shut with a final clatter. He stepped back behind the food cart. You're all in terrible danger, Eisenfaust said, his voice becoming strident with urgency. Please, you cannot ignore this threat for long. The guard sighed. He leaned against the door. Listen, pal, he said. If it'll shut you up, I can tell you this. They're sending a mock ops detective down here to interview you tomorrow. Save it for her, okay? Without another word, the man wheeled out of sight. Eisenfaust stepped back, mind racing. A detective? Hardly an official, but at least someone who was trusted to report on matters of consequence. This faceless woman was a life preserver thrown to Eisenfaust, adrift again on a sea of uncertainty. He felt momentarily giddy. Danke. He called down the hall. Danke? What kind of nonsense are you spouting? The rough voice came from the cell directly across his, the face behind the grill was black, blacker than the black man who'd rescued him from the ocean, blacker than a human should be. Deutsch, mein Freund. German. It means thanks. You ain't been here for long if you're thanking the COs, the black shape said. 
You probably think you're in here by mistake. Nine. I asked to be here. The voice laughed, a coarse bark. Didn't know stupidity was illegal. Eisenthaus scowled. I suppose you're incarcerated for rudeness. Again, the staccato laugh. <laughs> Not me. Robbery with metahuman powers. Aggravated assault. Resistant arrest. The list goes on. Your lucky echo is so permissive. I'd have killed you on the spot. Oh, 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 big man. You're scaring me. What are you in for? Eisenfast thought for a moment. I killed one hundred and twelve men that I know of. Silence fell upon the corridor around them. Yeah? The black shape moved away from the grill, his voice smaller. Yes. Shooting. Bombing. By plane, by pistol. Two with a knife. One with my bare hands. All necessary deaths in wartime, he told himself, though in this den of thieves he took some relish in trumping their claims. No criminal can exceed the sins of a man at war. Damn. So, in my eyes, you're all mere amateurs. Verse, your crimes were committed for selfish reasons. I fought for my country. Every ear seemed to be turned to their conversation. Eisenfaust blushed. His story wasn't for these low lives. Only Echo and their heroes were his peers, regardless of what cause they served. A high-pitched voice sang out from his right. He shut you up good, Slick. Go to hell. Slick rumbled. My daddy served a nam. Killed him a dozen gooks and brought back their fingers on a string. This guy ain't no different, except... His voice trailed off. Who'd you serve under? Haven't you guessed? Eisenfaust paused for effect. Adolf Hitler. The corridor erupted with angry shouting. The guards came through in squads, banging on the cell doors with energized prods and calling for order. Eisenfaust took his meal to his seat and smiled as he picked at the cornbread and ham. Tomorrow he'd meet with the detective and give her enough tidbits to earn him an audience with the master of the house. Alex Tesla. The cornbread was surprisingly tender. Tesla, he mused. I wonder if he's any relation to the great man. Detective Ramona Ferrari and the girls hushed when Mercury strolled into the Echo Cafeteria. The man moved like a dancer, or a rock star. Like he really is a god, Cheryl the researcher whispered with a smirk. But Ramona's thoughts were strictly in the gutter. How could they not be? Staring at his broad shoulders and muscular chest, staring because he notoriously spurned shirts, one would have guessed him to be taller than his actual height. Blonde curls peeked out from under a winged helmet straight out of an FTD florist logo. To complete the picture, a steel caduceus hung from his hand. His pants, however, were standard-issue Echo nano-weave, as was the Echo caseless round pistol strapped around his waist. The women couldn't help it. They gossiped about him as though he were a celebrity, which, to the outside world, he was. 
Mercury took full advantage of his notoriety and pouty good looks to romance glamorous starlets and models. Way, way, way out of my league, even if he weren't a meta, Ramona lamented. She sucked nicotine into her lungs, imagining what a night with him would be like. He could whisk her through the air, into her bedroom by way of the window, open and admitting a wind gentle enough to ruffle the curtains. The image soured when her extraordinary ability to visualize details kicked in. Her heavy, wide-hipped body looked comical in his arms, endangering his back muscles. One hand dangled an ever-present cigarette, ashing on his sandaled feet. Her cluttered, messy bedroom could have been improved by a tornado. He'd trip over a pile of discarded magazines and drop her on the bed, whose unwashed sheets would kick up a cloud of cat hair. Mmm, those pecs. Cheryl said, licking her lips. Ramona and the others giggled. She wondered if the Metas gossiped about each other the way support personnel and Mac Ops carried on about the gods in their midst. He's probably dull, she decided, watching his finely sculpted posterior navigate through the cafeteria and plant itself next to a table of fellow Mach 1s. Ramona relished her weekly lunches with her friends on the Echo Campus. Although they stared and giggled like schoolgirls, their jobs were anything but whimsical. Cheryl studied psychopathic behavior among metahumans. Denise worked in the infirmary, though her skill set would have placed her in any emergency room in the country. Midori worked in weapons tech, measuring the trajectory of the various sorts of specialized ammunition with which Echo equipped its operatives. To accommodate all their schedules, they met in mid-afternoon, after a volley of emails as they worked out the kinks. Many lunches ended prematurely when a cell phone rang. Thus, they wasted no time in getting right to the meat of the matter. If my husband knew how many of these metas were studs, he'd make me resign, Midori said. And lose that paycheck? Denise snorted. Not likely. Just buy him a cape and a mask for meta night. The table erupted in laughter, drawing a glance from Mercury himself. That got them laughing even harder. Oh, Jesus, Cheryl said wiping tears from her eyes. I needed that. So, Ramona, got any good cases right now? Hmm. Ramona poured more sugar into her coffee. We just wrapped up that kidnapping case, the three kids. Turns out the perp wasn't a meta after all, just a kook in a mask. I had Shakti set up to drill him, but APD took over. She shrugged. She would have made the collar without killing him. Of course she would. Otherwise, the Echo lawyers would have had to fill in out a hundred-page reports about the incident just to steer clear of the extreme force law. Cheryl made a face. Then again, she could just tie him up in webbing. Splat! The other girl snickered. Webbing? Ramona furrowed her brow. She can do that? Cheryl waved her arms like a giant bug. Probably. Doesn't she creep you out? Her extra arms? You get used to it. Ramona thought back to the cases she'd worked with the four-armed Indian metahuman. What's creepy is how dour she is. She doesn't look at you when she's talking, like you're a storm mannequin. The only time I ever saw her smile was when Handsome Devil showed up at a debriefing. Denise became serious. I don't care for him, she said in a low, somber voice. His name isn't a joke. His name is Klaus, and he's a meta just like the others. Ramona said, rolling her eyes. Lighten up, girl. Denise shook her head, scowling. The table grew silent as the girls picked over their food. 
Science can't explain the metahuman condition, Denise said, breaking the silence. God has touched these people to do his work on Earth. Why can't the devil do the same? Ramona cleared her throat. Denise had worked for missionary organizations in Africa before she signed on with Echo. As much as Ramona liked the doctor, the surprise sermons wearied her. If you'd ever taken a moment to talk to the man, Ramona said, you'd know he's as human as anyone. Are Metis human? Midori let the question hang in the air. No one had an answer. A man wearing an elaborate metal gauntlet and stars and stripes epaulets entered the cafeteria. Yankee pride spotted Ramona's table and strode towards them purposefully. Ramona stared at him blankly for a moment, then her stomach lurched. She'd forgotten the prisoner interview he'd set up for her. She scrambled to dig through her briefcase for the paperwork. Ladies, he drawled, inclining his head with a polite smile. The son of war heroes Yankee Doodle and Dixie Bell was said to power his energy gauntlet through a reservoir of internal energy. Ramona had noticed that he didn't have an aura of intimidation that most metahumans gave off unintentionally. When you're a walking weapon, people treat you differently. Well, hello, tall, dark, and patriotic, she said, still fishing for the paperwork. I was just reviewing the file on that perp. Were you? He grinned at her. She came up empty-handed. No, I spaced it. Yankee Pride pulled up a chair to the table. We have a minute now. You gonna eat that pickle? He pointed to Midori's plate. She chuckled and pushed it towards him. Ramona brought her briefcase up to her lap to leaf through the papers. The file was buried by reports, dossiers, faxes, and notepads. Heinrich Eisenhower. Any relation to Dwight D? I'm kidding. He referred to himself as Eisenfaust, German for Iron Fist. He shrugged. I looked it up online. Plenty of material on this guy from the historic sites, even Wikipedia. Ramona found the printout of the online article. Nice detective work. What do you need me for? Look at the dates, detective. She bristled for a moment until she realized he used her title with respect, not sarcasm. He really is a southern gentleman, despite the Yankee tag, she thought. Wonder if his parents refought the Civil War while they raised him. Hey, she blinked at the printout. This says he died over the Atlantic. The Bermuda Triangle? Fighting the Allied Aces, right. Which makes our friend over in the security facility a liar or a science fiction novel come to life. Occam's Razor, she said, making a cutting motion with one hand. The simplest explanation is probably the best. The man's a meta. I watch the security tapes. He moves like Greece Latin. Yankee Pride favored the women at the table with a meaningful look. That changes everything. You bet, Cheryl said, nodding gravely. Can I see? Ramona handed her the file. Cheryl moved her lips silently as she read the dossier, incident report, and Yankee Pride's online research. Her shoulders hunched as if she were trying to force herself into the pages. Cheryl could obsess over a case for months, Ramona knew, having delivered coffee and food at midnight when she'd forgotten to eat. He believes he's Eisenfaust, she said in a small voice. The rest of the table leaned forward to hear her. He's not a thrill-seeker. She closed the file. 
Bring a shrink. Already reserved a slot in Doc Bootstrap's schedule. Yankee Pride winked at her. Good to know I'm reading my Wikipedia right. Oh, please. She returned the file to him, but he passed it right to Ramona. She's got a little reading to do. Thirty minutes, detective. The seriousness returned to his demeanor. Did he think Ramona would find something he and Cheryl had missed? Ramona sighed. I'll be ready. The pictures, spread across her portion of the table, told this man's story now. A hopeless attention seeker, a small mind blessed or cursed with extraordinary abilities, but not the strength of character to use them constructively. Poor jerk, she said, giving into her own weaknesses and lighting up another cigarette, despite the cafeteria signs. He was my great uncle, Alex Tesla said with infinite patience. My father knew him as a teenager. Framed by the plasma TV screen, the CEO of Computrex had perverted giggling adolescence. He knew Nikola Tesla? Are the stories true? He was building a death ray for the army? Uncle, er, great Uncle Tesla, experimented on a wide variety of inventions, peaceful and otherwise. Some do lend themselves to lurid speculation. The Pentagon never provided him funding for any of his wartime projects. The man was undaunted. So there is a Tesla death ray? Yes. Really? The CEO, a mousy man with an ill-advised goatee grown to hide a double chin, lit up in excitement. Does Echo have the prototype? I'm teasing you, Mr. Favor. Echo Industries focuses on the peaceful applications of my great-uncle's work in broadcast energy. He smiled into the video camera. Wouldn't you say that there are enough weapons in the world already? I suppose. Faber was unappeased. What about anti-gravity? They say that... Trust me, if we had anti-gravity technology, you and I would not be discussing broadcast power sourcing to server farms. I'd be selling flying cars and floating cities to Arab sheiks. Faber laughed thinly at the quip. Reality never fails to disappoint, Tesla thought. Uncle Tesla dreamed of a world like the science fiction this man reads, yet arriving at equations is but a fraction of the battle. To change the world, one must beg for money from scoundrels and thugs, kleptocrats who rule the nations through a balancing act of oppression and appeasement. Rational thought, scientific thought, is tolerated only when it can generate profits or kill enemies. Yet ever since Echo was founded in the 1950s by his father, Andrew Tesla, Echo had used their metahuman law enforcement contractors, what amounted to a private army, to maintain public goodwill towards the alternate energy source that had made Nikola Tesla famous. When Alex took over in the 80s, he hoped the oil shortages would spur acceptance of broadcast energy for automobiles. He outfitted the Echo vehicles with receivers and batteries, and graced them with a stylish, futuristic design to appeal to the public's craving for the status symbols. Yet the oil companies would not be beaten easily. Their network of purchased politicians pushed laws to limit the uses of broadcast energy sources pending further study. Just as Zhao had lobbied to criminalize hemp to make way for their new product, nylon, the oil companies spent millions to demonize broadcast energy. Suddenly, it was responsible for cancer, brain cell deterioration, blindness, and heart attacks. The campaign was more insidious than the metahuman criminals as operatives faced because there was nothing illegal about it. 
Alex found himself marginalized as a kook and well-meaning crackpot. He'd spent the next two decades of his life fighting that reputation. Ultimately, the legend surrounding Nikola Tesla caught the imagination of technology industry entrepreneurs who sought any shortcut to market saturation. Restrictions were loosened. Awkward young multimillionaires like Gerald Faber requested meetings with Alex, and inroads were made at a snail's pace. Thus, as exasperating as nebbish young men like Faber could be, Alex reminded himself to be gracious to the most inane questioning. Only good could come of it. In all seriousness, though, you might be interested in our industry-leader retreats, which we offer to our best customers. A week touring Echo facilities, viewing the latest research, meeting the operatives. I can hang out with superheroes? Alex hoped his smile hid the hunter's sense of triumph he felt. The mocks are common at any Echo campus. You'll surely become accustomed to them as we do. What's that cost? Faber's face loomed in the plasma screen, eager as an amateur porn actor. It's provided as a courtesy to our, um, um, elite customers. Why don't we review the prospectus? A gentle buzz tickled his wrist in an alternating sequence of short and long bursts. He jerked erect. Mr. Faber, I fear something has come up that requires my immediate attention. He paused. Something involving... superheroes... Can we continue this conversation at your earliest convenience? Without waiting for a confirmation, he waved his assistant forward. Planner in hand, the young man took Alex's seat as he raced out of the room. Faber's queries receded into the distance. Alex all but ran back to his office. Kim held up a sheaf of faxes and letters, but he cut her off with a gesture. Hold my calls, he said, disappearing into his office. He ignored his desk, walking up to the bookshelf and tugging at Bullfinch's mythology. The book tilted forward with a click. The bookcase swung into the wall to reveal a narrow, dark spiral staircase. He gripped the rail as he vaulted down the stairs three at a time, descending ten stories and down into the ground. The sleek room at the foot of the stairs was lit only by the glow emanating from the panels of sleek machinery attached to the walls. In the center of the room, four coils mounted on posts sparked and hummed. Before the square they described was a wooden chair, a helmet bristling with wires and antenna hung from the seat back. Alex flipped a few switches. The coils came to life, coruscating electricity between them, a four-cornered Tesla coil of a design unknown to the outside world. The tangy taste of ozone permeated the dank room. His hair stood on end. Swiftly, he turned a large red dial. The generators whined and sang to him. Electrical arcs leapt from coil to coil at an increasing frequency until a curtain of electricity shimmered before him, irregularities forming momentary shapes before reverting to the downward cascade again. Alex scooted the chair back a foot and sat. The helmet flattened his electrically excited hair. When he closed a circuit on the helmet, the intermittent shapes filled the air and took on a recognizable form. I'm here, Uncle, Alex said. His soul contained in a matrix of neutrons, the entity that had been Nikola Tesla took a moment to process the visual data fed to him by the machines in the tiny hidden room. A speaker converted electrical impulses into sound. Alex, we must talk, you and I, about your guest, this Eisenfaust. The bookcase opened and shut behind him. Head bowed, Alex mused on his great uncle's words, 
For Nicola to appear so abruptly could only mean that the man, if he could still be called that, regarded the matter of Eisenfaust with enormous concern. Alex hadn't even been notified of the man's arrest, so minor an incident it was. He needed to talk with Yankee Pride, whose suspicions had been triggered enough to send a message to Metis, to Uncle Tesla. Oops, Chief. Didn't mean to interrupt. Alex startled. Doc Bootstrap stood by his desk, arranging a set of syringes, as casual as a bartender. The man had been a field commander in Mac Ops before he took the unlikely position of staff psychiatrist, and his tough leadership methods carried over into therapy, and resulted in his nickname. For a tough group of modern-day warriors, he was just what they needed to deal with the stresses of their chosen profession. Alex glanced back at the bookcase. I thought I'd lock the office door. You did. Kim let me in. Doc Bootstrap nodded at the closed door. Nice bookcase. When do I get one? Uh, Alex hesitated. Executive washroom. Leftover from my father's time. He waved a hand in front of his nose. You don't want to go in there right now. Your own private retreat. As your shrink, I approve. He held a syringe up to the light. I hoped to catch you before I had to sit on the Eisenfaust interview. An odd expression crossed the man's face, half worry, half triumph. Eisenfaust. Yes. Um, Yankee Pride gave me a quick rundown. What do you think? Is he the real thing? Doc Bootstrap shrugged. Are you asking me if a man who disappeared in 1945 can waltz into our laps as if sixty years hadn't passed? I guess, Alex said, chuckling. The psychiatrist patted his syringes. We'll find out his side of the story in a few minutes. I can tell you this, though. A grin widened on his face until it was a rictus. He lunged forward and jabbed the syringe into Alex's neck. Alex staggered back. He hadn't even seen the man move. Numbness spread from the injection through his throat so that he couldn't speak. His hands clawed at the syringe, but its payload had been discharged. He fell across the desk. Paperwork fluttered to the floor. Doc Bootstrap loomed over him. The room began to spin, and it seemed to Alex that the doctor's features softened as though his bones shifted. You hold our old friend, the real Eisenfaust, in your pathetic cell block, Americana. Doc Bootstrap's accent had shifted from a gruff Midwestern twang to a clipped Germanic. I could kill him myself, but it is not my place. My superiors will be here shortly to exact revenge on the traitor. He patted Alex's cheek. Nor will I kill you. Better for you to live as we burn your little army and your city in a ring of cleansing fire. The Thule Society wants you to live on to experience your humiliation in the eyes of the world. You will be a symbol of failure to the people you once protected. The doctor rolled up his syringes. Now, I have an appointment to keep. I would ask Kim to look in on you, but I had to snap her neck to get your key. He rolled up his sleeve. A small metal device on his arm blinked red and green. Doc Bootstrap pressed it. The red vanished, leaving the green light. Then meet again, Alex Tesla. I can become anyone, male or female. Your mother, your lover, your best friend, your doctor. You'll never know it's me until you feel my breath on your neck. Then, and only then, will the doppelganger take your life. 
Alex's eyes rolled up into his head, and he slumped over. The man called the doppelganger hummed Die Fein Hock as he strode out of Alex's office, heading for the security wing, where Eisenfaust awaited him. The metahuman called Southwind stood at his full height, eight feet, and stretched out spider-thin arms to slap the tabletop with his palms. The particle board cracked under the impact. In the conference room, the sound was as powerful as a gunshot. The mediator jumped in his seat. It's stupid. It's moronic. It's it's childish, and I want nothing to do with it. Rinaldo, another metahuman, as tall and exaggerated as the first, put a gentle hand on the angry Southwind's arm. Southwind yanked his arm away, pouting. That's right, Reynaldo, not Southwind, not one of the four winds. Who comes up with this garbage? Hey! Westwind, the bulkiest of the metahumans, stayed seated, but leaned forward over the beleaguered table, glowering. He would still be considered thin by any human standards. My wife coined the name, thank you very much. It was supposed to emphasize our unity of purpose. Southwind barked a contemptuous laugh. Oh, you're unified, all right. Unified against me. I have never been against you. My brother. Oh, spare me, Don. You always thought your brother would grow out of it. Some woman would sweep him off his feet and he'd stop chasing men around. Southwind pointed at Northwind. Look at him, you pompous jerk. He's a freak now. We all are. I'm all he's got now, and I won't leave his side. He has us, Eastwind said. She smoothed her hair unconsciously. With her over-large eyes, tiny chin, and pointed ears, traits shared by them all, she looked more like an overgrown cartoon elf than a UFO alien. Oh, good luck with that! A happy family that looks like it just walked off the set of In Search Of. Where's Leonard Nimoy when you need him? The mediator, a stout man who felt tiny amongst these spindly giants, stood and waved his hands. Folks, please, let's calm down. We'll get these feelings out together as a team, but not in accusations and insults. Don't you people want to be happy? Southwind turned on the man with clenched fists. You people? I can't tell if you're insulting queers or metahuman freaks, or both. It was Eastwind who moved first to interpose herself between the mediator and the towering Southwind. Stop it, Ray. I grew up with five younger brothers. I won't tolerate your whining. I'm not in danger, the mediator said in a quiet voice. Please sit back down both of you. Southwind glowered at the man before slumping down in his seat, a grotesque exaggeration of sulking. Eastwind sat and looked as though she would stick her tongue out at any moment. The mediator let out a breath. Good. Thank you. Both of you. Now, just for my sake, let's review your situation. He made a show of opening his file and removing their dossier. The papers, a delicate symbol of authority, had the desired effect. The four winds settled into a tense silence. You gained telekinetic powers simultaneously on a camping trip two years ago during the Wyoming Dragon Incident. Together, he let the word hang in the air. You subdued the creature, saving the lives of dozens of campers. Am I correct so far? The four winds all nodded and muttered. Good. You joined Echo at Mr. Tesla's invitation. You underwent a year of training and testing, at the end of which you were granted Mach 2 status. You have been on active duty for 11 months, during which you have participated in 61 incidents. Westwind has been injured on the job, the rest of you haven't. 
he noted that Eastwind took her husband's hand. Also in the dossier, and forgive me if you regard this as an invasion of privacy, is the information that Reynaldo and Kevin have been romantic partners for four years now. Four and a half, yes. Northwind smiled. Sorry, I keep track. Quite all right. Healthy, in fact, though don't mistake me for a marriage counselor. He took a deep breath. It behooves me to point out to all four of you that law enforcement work places a tremendous pressure on partners. The tension I see between you, all of you, arises from the fear created by seeing your loved ones placed in peril. Once again, let me float the idea that you all seek reassignment to different squads. The four winds shook their heads, south wind most vigorously. No way, he said. Kevin needs me. Even with all that training, he's not a fighter. Oh, thanks, Northwind said. You're not mean enough. There's nothing wrong about it. You do fantastic damage control. Southwind's expression softened. Come on, hon, I'm just being honest. Honest is good, the mediator interrupted. Honest and calm will get us far. I agree with Ray, Westwind said in an authoritative voice. He and I were both in the service. We know our way around in a fight. Janet and Kevin have other strengths, which are just as necessary. The four winds, he winked at her with his huge eyes, work best as a team. Thanks, Southwind said. Westwind nodded in assent. The mediator sighed. They were teaming up on him now. It wasn't the course he'd planned for the session because it didn't address their fundamental conflicts. He'd seen plenty of Metas fall in love and marry, most famously Yankee Doodle and Dixie Belle, who spurred the establishment of Echo in Atlanta. Metas often preferred their own company to that of normal people. Just consider it, he said. The military avoids assigning siblings to the same company for similar reasons. It's hard to separate the emotions of conflict with those of interpersonal relationships. No one needs that extra burden, especially... His voice trailed off. Especially because we're freaks. Southwind glared at him. To put it bluntly, yes. I can see that your condition profoundly affects your self-image. That's natural. There's nothing natural about our condition, Northwind said. Or perhaps there is. Metahumans may be the next step in evolution. We simply don't know. A wave of exhaustion washed over the mediator. He wondered if he should himself ask for a reassignment. The bitterness of some metahumans wore him out. The four winds watched him with their immense, expressive eyes, waiting for an utterance that would magically mend the damage to their psyches, looking for all the world like four bitter aliens stranded on Earth with only each other for company. John Brooke glanced longingly at his magazine as he checked the papers of the executives waiting for permission to enter the Echo Campus. He'd brought the latest issue of Maxim for a reason. Working gate duty was as dull as a gray sky, yet enough traffic passed through that he couldn't read without interruptions. Worse yet, his partner today was Rebecca Holder, who aspired to move up the chain of Mac Ops, so in every spare moment she turned her attention to her forensics textbook. The hours crept by. Around 4 p.m., a brown Shipex semi came to a halt on the shoulder of the lane leading to the gate. John leaned out of his booth to watch the driver for a moment, wondering whether the man would pull up to the gate. After a few minutes of inactivity, he shrugged and returned to Maxim's top ten list of party colleges. Rebecca hadn't even bothered to leave her station. The roar of an engine and a fresh whiff of exhaust caught his attention. 
a second ship X truck had parked behind the first. The newcomer didn't budge either. Maybe they're yakking on the radio. As long as they're not blocking the way, I don't care. A subsonic whine in the grate of tires on pavement got him out of his seat. Without internal combustion engines, the echo vehicles hummed along in near silence. He was used to the quiet announcement of their arrival. The armored van sported a broadcast energy receiver and a pointed dome on the roof. The van contained an entire Mach 1 squad, three Mach 1 operatives, a Mac Ops detective, and the DCO, damage control officer, at the wheel. His insignia, a red cross on a white field with DCO emblazoned underneath, was visible through the window. John stepped forward with his data catch. Afternoon, y'all. How'd it go? Total failure, the DCO said, making a face. Even with the sirens cranked, we couldn't get through traffic. The All-Star game has jammed every major artery. By the time we got there, it was a police line and a lot of head-scratching. John tapped the number of the van into the data catch. The received icon blinked at him twice. The roster populated on the LCD screen. DCO Evans, Detective Tran, Dreamcatcher, the Troll, and the Corby. He looked up in time to see two more ship-ex semis line the driveway. The troll leaned his craggy head out the passenger window. What's with the ship-ex trucks? He rasped. Corby cackled in the back of the van, where his wings could flex. Office supplies, what? Someone typed in too many knots on the paperclip order. John craned his neck over the van. Rebecca, they can't block the driveway. Chase them off, will you? On it she said, with a crisp salute and a grin. She trotted out to the lead truck, textbook still in hand. Who's German? Dreamcatcher said. She massaged her temples, disrupting salt and pepper hair. The river of mines is replete with German impressions all of a sudden, and something else. Corby maneuvered for a better view out the window. A tour bus, maybe. He glanced at Dreamcatcher, who now gripped her arms as though she were freezing. Hey, love, what's the matter? Hatred, she whispered through chattering teeth. Three more ship-ex trucks rolled down the driveway, making no effort to park. Rebecca waved her arm to flag them down. Save her, Dreamcatcher hissed. John's heart leapt. He dropped his data catch and broke into a sprint towards Rebecca, who stood in the path of the accelerating trucks. Bail! the troll said, scrambling out of the passenger seat. The corby jerked open the rear doors and hauled Dreamcatcher out in his arms. His black raven's wings caught the air and lifted them both. Rebecca screamed as she realized she had no time to dodge the truck bearing down on her. She threw her arms up. The textbook flew into the air. Yards away, John hollered uselessly as the truck crushed the woman under its chrome grill and sped towards the gate. The DCO revved the engine while the detective yelled at him to abandon the van. Too late, he opened the door and took a step out. Twisting metal caught him in a colossal crash that slammed him, the detective, and the echo van through the gate. The rear of the van crumpled despite its armor plating, and the ship-ex truck's cab burst into flame. John dove to the side to avoid the massive steel barreling towards him. The troll climbed to his feet nearby, a laborious process for the tall, gangly, green-hided creature. The corby flapped above the scene, holding Dreamcatcher under the armpits. The remaining truck screeched to a halt. John caught a glimpse of the driver's face, pale, blonde, square-jawed, and deformed with a leer of pure sadism. More so than the collision, the sight confirmed his fear. Echo was under attack. The metal sides of the truck bulged out like tent fabric, 
immense gauntleted hands thrust out, followed by massive armored forms so unfamiliar that he couldn't register the details in one glance. The blue glow surrounding the guns attached to their arms mesmerized him. Run, the troll said in his ear. John backpedaled. Before he spun to make a mad dash for the interior campus, he saw the troll stepping forward, brandishing bony fists the size of basketballs. The Corby and Dreamcatcher had landed and unholstered their guns. The armored creatures kept spilling out of the shredded trucks. Ten, twenty, fifty, more. The combined sounds of their metal boots stamping the asphalt was like being in the path of a freight train. It's bloody World War Two, he heard the Corby say. Then John ran as hard as he had ever run in his life from the explosion of gunfire and energy beams. Yankee Pride glanced at his watch. It's not like Doc to be late. He and Ramona stood with one of the correctional officers at the cell block entrance. He's probably berating a Mach 1 for their feelings of inadequacy. Can I smoke in here? Ramona lit the cigarette before the CO could object. The smoke soothed her nerves. She hated prisons. The despair, the anger, the greedy stares from incarcerated men. Not to mention the handful she'd put in here herself. They never forgot. In other countries, Echo housed metahuman criminals in state-run facilities, contributing money and know-how to the special issues of detaining metahumans. Only in America was the entire operation farmed out to Echo. She'd heard talk of privatizing the prison system. If they were run as tightly as Echo's was, it could only be an improvement. She and Yankee Pride had gone through four security checks set up at kill points with alert snipers concealed behind blast plates. For the sake of convenience, she'd left her sidearm in her locker. They didn't confiscate Yankee Pride's power gauntlet, though. This guy's been dying to meet you, detective, the CO said with a smirk. He thinks you're going to save him. So he's having a midlife crisis? Could be, the CO shrugged. Or delusions of grandeur. That's what I'm banking on. Still, it beats being on a stakeout. He just turned himself in? The man scowled. Took out three of our guys first. Hardly turning yourself in. According to the report, he asked to talk to their commanding officer. Maybe he's just a snob. She winked at him. The gate behind them clattered open. Doc Bootstrap bustled through, looking flustered. You'd think they knew me by now. He pushed past them. Well, let's get started. We're behind schedule, thanks to me. The CO made a stubbing motion at Ramona. Frowning, she ground the cigarette underfoot. No skin off my back, she told the psychiatrist. She brandished the file at him. You want to read this? No need. I'll know everything I need to know the moment this loser opens his mouth. I bet you're missed at Harvard. He hesitated. Harvard? I'm kidding, Doc. After you. They accompanied the CO down the corridor. The hubbub began. Insults, taunts, catcalls. Ramona tried to ignore it. The CO spoke into his comm unit when they reached Eisenhower's cell. Let me tell you the drill, Eisenhower, the CO said to the prisoner. No funny business. No sudden moves. We have sonics directed at your head at all times. Any aggressive behavior will result in incapacitation. Be nice to the lady. Oh, he will, said a coarse voice behind them. 
The crowd been waiting for his girlfriend all day. Maybe shut up now. Please, ignore him, Fräulein. His kind lack manners. Eisenfaust spoke through the grill in his door. The dark form cackled behind his grill. There he go with that Nazi talk again. The door slid open. Eisenfaust stood at attention, his broken arm tucked neatly into his stomach. Oberst Heinrich Eisenhower, at your service. His ice-blue eyes looked directly into hers. Ramona swallowed. The man had a powerful presence. Were she at a bar, she might try to work up the nerve to approach him. Here, in the Echo Prison, he was at her mercy, yet he seemed to take ownership of the moment, as though she were his guest. She cleared her throat. Detective Ramona Ferrari, this year's Yankee pride. Eisenfaust nodded to the Mach 1. We've met. A pleasure to see you again, young man. <laughs> Yankee pride looked down his nose at the Nazi. And Doc Bootstrap, our psychiatrist. Eisenfaust furrowed his brow. You think I'm insane? No, we think you're a time traveler. We brought the shrink in case you had lingering issues with your mother. She opened his file. Don't waste my time, buddy. Certainly not. Eisenfaust indicated the bunk with a sweep of his hand. Would the Fraulein care to sit? Everything about the man's body language seemed to come from another time. This interview would take a while. Sure, why not? She and Yankee Pride entered the cell. She leaned against the wall as she arranged herself on the stiff mattress, stuffed only with foam. No chance to make shivs here. Doc Bootstrap edged into the cell, never taking his eyes off Eisenfaust. Ramona looked from the dock to Yankee Pride, who raised his eyebrows. Yo lead, he said. All right. She fastened her gaze on Eisenfaust and his blue, unblinking eyes. We all know why you're here. Forgive me, but don't have the first clue why I'm truly here. And I won't tell you everything. My story is for Alex Tesla's ears alone. Yankee pride guffawed. Listen to this guy. You're not so eager to get out of jail, are you? Eisenfaust paused. His eyes roved from one face to another, lingering on Doc Bootstrap, who glared back. I understand. Such vagaries are counterproductive, and I haven't done much to engender your trust. He relaxed. I'll tell you enough to confirm my identity. Then you will convey my request to speak to Mr. Tesla in person, yeah? You may take any precautions you wish to protect your commander. Our boss doesn't make a habit of chatting with prisoners. Ramona pinched the bridge of her nose. Fine, fine. Make your pitch. What do you got? Eisenfaust cleared his throat. We knew it was the final days of the Second World War. The Reich forces had been spread too thin over too many theaters. My Uberluftwaffe had engaged the Allied aces over the Atlantic Ocean, in the region near the Bermudas. Despite our superior numbers and technology, the aces had lived up to their reputations. My pilots were dead. My 
A look of pain crossed his face. My second in command and I fled the battle with aces in hot pursuit. Ramona knew all this from Yankee Pride's printouts of Wikipedia. The prisoner's story could have come from any history book, yet she registered his unconscious movements as he spoke, the twitching of his hand as though it still held a yoke, the alert posture. Whoever he was, he was military, possibly a pilot. Yankee Pride opened his mouth to speak, but Ramona silenced him with a raised hand. "'Go on,' she said. "'We commenced evasive maneuvers. Effie and I, but the aces smelled blood. Corsair, the American, and Le Falcon Blanc, the Frenchman, took turns shooting holes in my tail. At my three o'clock, Brumby and Geyer Falcon closed in on Effie's plane. I veered into their path to take the bullets intended for her.' A fuel line was punctured. I would have to bail out over open sea. A grim resolve overtook me. I would not be prisoner of these damned allies. Eisenfaust would die a hero, and perhaps Effie would live on. I saw my chance and steered for Geyer Falcon's fuselage. Even a skilled pilot such as he could not evade so suicidal a charge. I saw the shock on his face through the cockpit window. But he surprised me. Instead of turning away, he turned towards me. Our wings clipped and sheared off, but we were both alive, albeit in planes spiraling towards the ocean. I fought against the acceleration to eject. Then a green light suffused the cockpit. I thought I had hit a green flare, but the light intensified. I hit eject and pulled the ripcord at once. Outside the plane, all was green. I could no longer see the water, the clouds, or Geyer Falcon. The parachute deployed badly. I braced myself for a water impact. Knees up, head down. Moments before I hit, I saw in the thick green light that the water was gone. I was over land. My reflexes allowed me to adjust my position in hopes of cushioning the impact somewhat, but, but when I crashed through the canopy and hit the ground, the pain was immense. I blacked out. My last thought was foolish. How dare this island get in my way? How unfair. That's where you broke your arm, then. Ramona pointed to his cast with her pen. Nine. That comes later. A story for your commander. I woke to horrible bruises and a headache, but have us alive. I lay on the ground, struggling to breathe, for an eternity. When I opened my eyes, the green light had gone. In its place were a devilish red sky and the stench of rotting foliage. I had never seen so sinister a jungle as this. All red and black trees and vines like the exposed intestines of a giant. The damp trees throbbed with insect activity at a pitch unfamiliar to me. I heard a groan nearby. The effort to walk towards it almost sent me into a swoon. When I found the source, I wanted to believe I was hallucinating. Gar Falcon's parachute had caught in the drooping branches of the tree. The vines. He shuddered. They moved, like the tentacles of an octopus. One had lain open his leg. Blood seeped out from dozens of tiny wounds where the thorns pierced his skin. The tree was consuming him. He was too weak to fight it. The man had tried to kill me, yet I could not let a good soldier die like that. I used my knife to hack him free from the vines. Eisenfaust paused for a breath. Ramona and Yankee Pride exchanged looks. She was surprised to see the veneer of skepticism had peeled away from the hero's face. 
in its place was a deep seriousness. Interesting, he said, still bluff. Keep going. Gyre Falcon faded in and out of consciousness. As slow as the vines were, I felt threatened by the jungle itself, and I had the growing sense that we did not belong there. Then I heard an engine roar above. Corsair's Hellcat trailing smoke. Pursuing it was a craft unlike any I'd ever seen. Doc Bootstrap stepped forward with a syringe dripping blue liquid in hand. I've heard enough. He is a nut job, to put it mildly, watching too much television. Nine. Doctor, hear me out. Doc Bootstrap swung his fist at the German's face. In spite of his metahuman reflexes, Eisenthaust was too surprised to duck. He staggered back from the force of the blow. The doctor lunged at him with the syringe brandished like a dagger. Whoa! Whoa, Doc, for Christ's sakes! Ramona interposed herself between the doctor and the German. She tried to intercept the arm holding the syringe, but the doctor fended her off with his free hand. Yankee Pride wrapped his arms around the doctor from behind. Eisenthaus stood stock still, face upraised to the ceiling. Something is wrong, he said. In one fluid motion, Doc Bootstrap elbowed Yankee Pride in the stomach, knocking the wind out of him, and then punched Ramona in the face. Her vision blurred. The cartilage in her nose had gone soft. The syringe moved towards Eisenfaust. He took his eyes off the ceiling for a moment. Without changing his posture, he stepped nimbly out of the way of the oncoming needle. Too slow, Air Doctor, he said. His hand snaked out, seized the syringe, and stuck it into Doc Bootstrap's chest. The doctor's eyes bulged. Ramona and Yankee Pride gaped at their impaled colleague. You are not who you claim to be, Eisenfaust said in German. They have come for me, haven't they? Yeah, traitor. Doppelganger answered in equally fluent German. His face twisted in contempt. If it weren't for your boundless ego, Echo would have learned everything by now. Valkyrie predicted you'd preen like a prize hen. Doc speaks awful good German. Ramona held her bloody nose. God, I sound like a duck. Yankee Pride flipped a switch on his gauntlet. Energy coursed through the circuitry. Too good, if you ask me. He aimed at Doppelganger, who had gone limp on his feet. You gonna stay awake long enough to enlighten us as to who the hell you are? The doctor's face relaxed. His expression softened. Then his face softened, as if the bones themselves flowed like putty. His coarse features became flat and mask-like. Oh, yeah, he said in a wet voice. I would not want to miss your deaths. His inhuman countenance tightened for a moment. Blue moisture colored the front of his jacket around the syringe. There. All gone. How troublesome. Call security, Yankee Pride ordered the guard. I've been trying, sir. Nothing but static. The shapeshifter laughed as they checked their comm units. No one could get a signal. What about the Sodics? Ramona edged away from the doctor. Hello? Anyone? The fail-safe containment system? Offline for hours, Doppelganger said. He spread his hands in triumph. I have brought the end of your precious echo. 
You and what army? Ramona said. A deep explosion shook the building. The shockwave of the blast shivered through her legs. Don't answer that. The prisoners erupted in a chorus of fear, followed by the whoops of the alarm system. Yankee pride bit his lip. His gauntlet wavered. Damn it. I should be out there. Then clobber this guy first, for Pete's sake! At the moment, Ramona craved her sidearm more than nicotine, sex, or money. Don't leave us here with him! Oh, right. The gauntlet flashed and a burst of energy threw Doppelganger against the concrete walls. He collapsed in a smoking heap. That should keep him. Kick him if he wakes up. I'm coming with you, Ramona said. Eisenfaust is the least of our worries right now. Yankee Pride paused to study the German. He tilted his head to one side. You're a tough one to read, mister. I had you pegged as a nutcase. Now I almost believe your crackpot story. I wish to my heart it was fabrication. Now I've brought the wrath of the fool society down on you. I hope you can withstand them, or my story will come to an abrupt end. The distant groan of concrete crumbling interrupted them. A breach, Ramona said. Whatever they're using, they broke through the perimeter. The armory isn't far, the guard said. Go, Yankee Pride said. He turned to Eisenfaust. Stay put. You'll be safest right here. Remember, you're still our prisoner. I hope to remain so, Eisenfaust said, bowing. Good luck, mine friends. Ramona and Yankee Pride followed the guard back down the corridor. The prisoners shouted questions as they passed their doors. Stay calm, the guard answered. The situation is under control. Whose control? Ramona wondered. Ours, I hope. The guard reached the cell block door first. As he reached out to tap in the security code, a blue glow shone through the peephole. Down! Yankee Pride lunged at the man. The door disintegrated into pieces under a barrage of azure energy beams. The concussion was terrific. It shredded the clothing and skin off the guard, who died instantly. It threw Yankee Pride into Ramona. They tumbled back down the corridor in a heap. Ramona's ears rang and her bones ached. Yankee Pride was as solid as a bus. You should buy me a drink first, she said, trying to push him off her. He shook his head to clear it. This close to Ramona's face, she saw blood mixed with his spittle, saw his skin pale. Get up, YP, damn it, they're coming! They were kicking out the remaining chunks of steel-reinforced concrete with metal-shod boots. Ramona thought she was hallucinating. Giant metal men emblazoned with swastikas. Any doubts she had about Eisenfaust vanished. A dozen troopers stepped into the cell block. The chorus of howls from the prisoners was that of trapped animals. To whip them further into a frenzy, the troopers set a few bolts down the corridor to destroy the far door. Yankee Pride rolled to a crouch and gained his gauntlet. Energy lashed out at the lead trooper, toppling him. One trooper stopped his dance to lift his comrade back to his feet, seemingly unarmed. The rest moved towards them with impunity. Ramona decided to obey her urge to run for it. She levered herself to her feet. Ahead of her, Eisenthaus had come out of his cell. He had pressed his face against the grill of the cell door across from his and was whispering fiercely. Despite her fear, the detective inside her wanted to know what he was saying. We have come for Eisenfaust, a voice boomed. Ah, there he is now. The voice summoned images of torture, cruelty, 
and a weary, jaded impatience with the uncooperative world. The man possessing it wore jet-black, lupine armor, with no blast helmet. Long blonde hair cascaded down to his shoulders, like an Aryan warrior of old. His features struck her as razor-sharp somehow. He's made new friends, I see. The tall woman who stepped forward was dwarfed by the armored giants around her. Her black leather outfit evoked a fetishist version of a Nazi uniform, complete with cape and fishnets. Heinrich, she sang in a mocking sing-song. Yankee pride dodged back as the troopers grabbed for him. Their long strides carried them past him. Surrounded, he yelled out and struck out with his gauntlet. Their own metal fists rose and fell with wet impacts until he stopped moving. Ramona, alone, stood between the Nazis and their quarry. The troopers waved their weapons. I deserve one last cigarette, she thought wildly. Allow me, the Nazi woman said, drawing a wicked-looking pistol. Effie, nine, Eisenfaust shouted. Valkyrie fired at Ramona's heart with deadly accuracy. She crumbled. Ramona lay still as the metahuman woman stood over her to gloat. "'America has grown fat and complacent,' Valkyrie said. "'You should have chosen your allies more carefully, darling.' Ramona lay still. The nano-weave vest Ramona wore under her blouse had absorbed most of the bullet's force. Her ribcage had taken the rest, and from the shards of pain when she took a shallow, hidden breath, she guessed she had broken a rib.' It made playing possum that much more appealing. Eisenfaust turned again to the cell door. Ramona thought she heard him say, You must tell them. Valkyrie and the Commandant bellowed at him in harsh German, calling his name. He ignored them and spoke rapidly to the occupant of the cell. The Commandant barked a command. The Commandant barked a command. The troopers directed their cannons at Eisenfaust and powered up with a cacophony of wines. As one, a dozen energy beams filled the air. The blue beams tore up the walls, the cell door, and the floor around Eisenfaust. Several hit him straight on. He'd made no effort to dodge. His body bent unnaturally as though his bones were sticks. The force sent his broken form skittering across the floor. Ramona had a vision of his striking blue eyes in earnestness. I must not forget that, she thought. Valkyrie cursed in German looking for all the world like a woman scorned. Then the Commandant laid a familiar hand across her shoulders and pulled her close. She folded into him, leaving no question about her new choice of man. The stray beams had destroyed a few cell doors. The prisoners peeped out, unsure whether they had a chance to escape. The Commandant's expression told Ramona everything she needed to know. From her prone vantage point, time moved slowly like a nightmare. She wanted to become invisible. The troopers opened fire on the prisoners. One was too slow. His head vanished in a blue cloud. On the commandant's orders, the troopers went from cell to cell, blasting down the doors and shooting or pummeling the occupants. The commandant led a detachment of troopers to the cell of the prisoner, to which Eisenfaust uttered his last words. Ramona tensed as the armored giants stepped over her still form. The suits must have been awkward to move in. No trooper risked his balance by stomping on her. Come out, the commandant ordered the prisoner. The hell with that, the man said. 
You come in here and get me, sucker. Valkyrie had reached the pulverized cell door. Ach! Disgusting! What is that thing? The troopers blockaded the opening. One entered. Ramona heard the sound of metal striking concrete and a transistorized German curse. The trooper surged forward. A black, shadowy form slipped through them with a strangely casual motion, as if excusing himself from a crown. Ramona recognized the prisoner, a petty thief who called himself Slick. He had chosen his nickname well. The troopers grasped at his frictionless, inky black skin without success. He paused before the commandant, who goggled at him in surprise. Ain't it funny that I get sprung from echo by punk-ass Nazis? He laughed in the commandant's face. Echo's gonna slap you sideways for this crap. Me? I'm out of here. He spun on a heel and slid down the corridor like an ice skater. Within seconds, he was gone. Stop him! The commandant bellowed. Blue beams followed the jet-black metahuman out the door. Ramona kept still and prayed they wouldn't check their handiwork. If I get out of this alive, she swore, I'm going to find that slick and have a nice, long conversation with him. Mercury pushed his plate away, still half full with fettuccine Alfredo. Echo spared no expense on their cafeteria. Another bite and I'll need to start wearing shirts like you losers. Welcome to the 21st century, God boy. Flack pointed with a pasta-laden fork. Not everyone wants to stare at your chest, you know. You're the only one who's complained. Mercury had always suspected Flack received his name for something other than his battle tactic of dashing his invulnerable body against his foes at incredible speeds. You'd go without if you could. What is this, a pickup basketball game? Permit me to retain my great personal dignity. He jammed the pasta into his mouth. Mercury snorted. Flack rubbed many of the echo mocks the wrong way. He still acted as though he lived in the hood on the west side, where every day was a battle for status. But Mercury found his insouciance refreshing after dealing with over-serious metahumans. In fact, he had to put on a shirt to accompany Flack to family barbecues, where he was the only white face in the crowd. Without fail, someone's grandmother would flirt with him, which he found utterly endearing. His own family, with their summer home in the Hamptons, would cringe at the sight. Jaws of life, jaws to his friends or those in a hurry, huffed a basso laugh. The barrel-chested man ate his food with care. His two robotic arms were powerful enough to rend steel. Not only that, but Echo Rescue Mocks wore white uniforms, which offered no concealment for sloppy eating. With a nervous giggle, Kid Zero glanced at each of the older metas. He had just turned eighteen, fresh from the Echo Training Academy. He derived his code name from his ability to split into two nuclear-energized bodies, each with their own irritating personality. Mercury's squad had their own nickname for the boy. "'Laugh all you want, pup,' Mercury said. "'Flack is notorious for breaking in newbies hard and fast.' "'Like that guy?' The young man pointed at the lawn beyond the cafeteria's floor-to-ceiling window. A guard ran full tilt across the grass, his body taut with terror, in spite of the blue sky and calm summer day. "'What the hell?' Flack rose from the table. Mercury just gaped at the surreal scene. 
a subharmonic hum vibrated his teeth. Framed by the window, huge metal men fell from the sky like raindrops. They hit the ground hard, bending their knees to cushion the impact. One landed directly on top of the guard, crushing him to death. Silence blanketed the cafeteria for one pregnant moment. Then Flack bellowed, Incoming! Chairs scooted back, weapons flew from holsters, clips were shoved into place, and squad leaders began to shout commands to their teams. The mock ops employees flipped the tables on their sides to serve as makeshift cover. The metahumans in the cafeteria, Mercury counted a dozen at a glance, clustered in their squads. For a moment, the inevitability of conflict froze his feet. Scores of the armored giants had landed on the lawn. Above them hovered half a dozen spheroid vessels on orange columns of luminescence. Fear twisted his gut. They're huge, he said. Sweat made his grip on his pistol unsure. The troopers leveled their guns at the window in unison. A black-clad trooper raised an arm as a signal. Open fire! someone yelled. He took aim at the leader's head and pulled the trigger. A volley of bullets accompanied by metahuman energy bolts, fireballs, and even explosive arrows, shattered the cafeteria window. Before Mercury could see the results, blue light encompassed them. An immense force threw him back against the salad bar. Once, when stopping a robbery, he'd been hit by a getaway car. Metahuman durability saved his life, but he'd been wobbly for days afterwards. The energy barrage hit him across his entire body, just as the car had. His caduceus left a brutal bruise on his back. His brief glimpse of the cafeteria left an image burned in his mind like the old Otama test films, a shock wave sweeping the round clear of everything and everyone. Endorphins flooded his veins. He pulled himself out of the wreckage of the salad bar, his own blood mixed with potato salad and ranch dressing. A handful of mock-ops had evaded the energy beams. They crouched behind the ruins of the tables and continued firing. Metahumans, not all of them, picked themselves up as dazed as he. He slipped on a severed hand, watch still wrapped around the wrist. The trooper's rifle sang a sinister note as they powered up for a second blast. They formed into a line and marched forward, dimly. He wondered if anyone would be left alive to write the report about this incident. A metal hand gripped his arm. Jaws of life, his white uniform bloody, pushed him forward. Do something! His squad leader, Flack, was nowhere to be seen. The cafeteria looked like it had been hit by a bomb. Nearby, Kid Zero groaned as held his head. In past conflicts, Flack would draw the fire away from his team and civilians, but he had the benefit of an invulnerable hide. Mercury's impulse was to run and hide. He realized it was the correct one. Make us a bolt hole, he told Jaws of Life. He unslung his caduceus. His legs pushed against the air, feeling the flow of energy that coursed through the atmosphere, the power of the Earth's winds. His first step fell six inches above the floor. Mercury took to the air with long strides. Inside of a second, he had cleared the broken window. He veered across the line of soldiers. Up close, he saw the swastikas on their chests. How utterly surreal, he thought. He flashed past the line of troops to the black-armored commander. With all his might, he slammed the caduceus against the man's winged helmet. It rang like a bell. One of the metal snakes broke off the caduceus. The commander shouted an order. The arm-mounted cannons rose to track him across the sky. Mercury hoped he could outrun their energy beams. 
He prayed that Jaws of Life was digging through the floor to evacuate the room. He doubted he would live through the next five minutes. Dull explosions cut through the roaring in Alex Tesla's ears. Under the influence of Doppelganger's injection, he lapsed in and out of a dreamlike torpor. The confrontation with the German replayed itself in his mind, fever-like, distilling into abstract movements and concepts. Beneath the disorientation, his mind raced and tossed ideas into his addled consciousness. Uncle Nicola. Echo. A ring of fire. His dead secretary. Eisenfaust. Doppelganger's shifting features. A ring of fire. His mind seized on it and spun it like a fiery wedding band. Laid flat, the area contained by it blackened. The flames fluctuated as another explosion shook the building. Lying on his side, facing the window, he watched a figure with a winged helmet dash through the sky, twisting and turning to avoid stabbing blue beams of destruction. Mercury. A part of his mind recognized the Mach 1. Mercury. The messenger. Cracks appeared inside the ring's perimeter, peeling up to form a Y. Fire burned beneath the strokes of the letter. A beam caught Mercury's leg and spun him in the air. He righted himself in time to avoid another barrage of seeking beams. The injured leg threw a wobble into his airborne strides. As if heralding the apocalypse, shooting stars flared above in the bright summer sky. A ring of fire, dissected by a Y. It seemed so familiar to him. He rubbed his eyes to wake himself. Surprised, Alex stared at his hands. He could move. His body was fighting off the paralyzing effects of the drug. He levered himself up to sit in his chair. From the vantage point, he could see armored men spread in squads across the lawn of the Echo Campus, directing their weapons at buildings and scattered flying metahumans. Mercury drew a large part of the fire. He danced between the beams as if running through a forest. The messenger of the gods, Alex thought. A message. I need to speak to my people. He forced his hand to move across the desk and tapped the buttons of the intercom for a line out. Static hissed out of the speaker. He thought he'd pressed the wrong button, but no channel gave him a signal. The white noise washed over him like a tidal pool. Mercury zoomed past his window, a spry blur. The beams followed him. They tore at the masonry of the building. The window exploded inwards. Shards of glass rained on Alex. Adrenaline overcame his paralysis. He dove under the desk. The sounds of battle were no longer muted. Cries, screams, gunfire, and detonations reached his ears. Papers littered the floor from his earlier fall. A letter on Echo Stationery lay inches from his face. Echo Corporate Headquarters, it read. One hundred Echo Way. Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta. The Y in the ring. The highway ringed Atlanta, I-285, the perimeter. His unconscious mind had already processed what Doppelganger hinted at. Better for you to live as we burn your little army and your city in a ring of cleansing fire. It wasn't merely an attack on the Echo facility. The Nazis had far greater designs. The intercom dangled from the desk, still hissing. He needed a way to communicate with the Echo operatives in the field, to send them to the perimeter and stop the Nazis. He needed a messenger. The last of the Nazi troopers had vanished through the hole in the cell block wall in pursuit of the prisoner who called himself Slick. The Commandant and Valkyrie had taken their squad, and the unconscious doppelganger, back the way they came, towards the administrative wing of the facility. Ramona counted ten painful breaths and rose to her feet. 
Her stomach heaved and emptied of the lunch she had eaten only an hour ago. She wiped stinging eyes as she coughed out the last of her bile. The dying groans of a few last prisoners resonated through the cell block. Ramona thought she ought to do something to help them, but the sound of explosions outside gave her a sense of urgency. In order for the Commandant to stroll in as casual as a red-carpet celebrity, he must have brought a massive force to engage the Echo Metahumans. No one had ever attacked Echo HQ. Not in fifty years. Anger coursed through her veins. This was defilement. The guards around her were dead. Yankee Pride still had a weak pulse, but looked like the ingredients for sausage. He would be no use to her. Her options were not encouraging. Follow Slick and his hunters out of the building, or trail the Commandant and that evil bitch. Unarmed, neither prospect appealed to her. Nor did hiding in a prison full of corpses while her friends died. This is where we earn our hazard pay, she concluded, making for the cell block door. The armored Nazi contingent was easy to follow. Ramona could have kicked over a table without being heard over the din of metal-shod feet and cannon shots. The Commandant and Valkyrie shouted in German to be heard, but Ramona could not understand the discussion. She strained to listen anyway, hoping to catch a name or a clue as to their destination. Once they had cleared the cell block and the checkpoints, each one a gruesome scene of bloody, broken guards, they turned to the left, the direction of the administration building. She estimated that the majority of the metahumans present on the Echo Campus would be in that building, filling out paperwork in their offices, researching leads, or eating a late lunch. The only reason to march an army towards Metahuman Center, Ramona thought grimly, is if you're looking for a knockdown, drag-out fight. She stooped to retrieve a pistol, and her ribs sang a song of pain. She gritted her teeth against it. When this is over, she promised herself, I am taking a handful of Vicodin and a hot bath. Forever. The sounds of battle grew in volume until they drowned out the stomping soldiers. Peeking around the corner, she saw that the Commandant's party had joined up with a contingent of troopers. Dozens. Her stomach flopped. She ducked back behind a corner and tried to calm herself. A few stray bullets hit the wall behind the Commandant. The troopers returned fire with their shrieking arm cannons. The air shuddered with the blasts. Ramona forced herself to remember the layout of the administration building. The gunfire could only have come from one direction. South. Thus, there had to be a group of Echo personnel in that direction. She could bypass the main corridor by cutting through the secretary pool. But to do so, she would have to cross the corridor in plain sight of the Commandant and Valkyrie. There's no hope for it, she decided. She screwed up her courage, what little she had left, and bolted for the door. It stood half open, a relief. She slowed herself so that she could push it without making noise, and heard a woman's voice bark at her in German. Aw, oh, hell. She dove into the room full of cubicles. Discarding stealth for speed, she sprinted between the cubicles and their post-it notes, Dilbert cartoons and memos. Valkyrie flung the door open behind her and unleashed a barrage of bullets over the cubes, Ramona yelped and ducked as the bullets knocked chunks out of particle board dividers. The maze of cubes led Ramona into a dead end filled with copy machines and printers. She gaped at it, betrayed by a shoddy office layout. Where was the fire marshal when you needed him? Come back, damn you! The German war criminal shouted. Give me one good reason! Bullets tagged the wall behind her. That wasn't it! She checked the ammo clip. 
only three bullets left. She could hear the creak of leather as the woman grew close. Ramona unplugged the Ethernet cable from the printer. It would have made a good garage, but she couldn't find the terminus. It passed into the wall. She settled for the AC power cord and hid in a nook created by an overlong divider. Valkyrie entered the printing cubicle pistol first. Come out, Liebchen, she said. I will make it painless. Ramona lunged at her with the power cord in her fists. Valkyrie squeezed off a shot so close to Ramona's ear that it deafened her, but she got the cord around Valkyrie's neck. Wrestling was where Ramona's extra pounds worked to her advantage. She put a knee in the German's back and leaned away. The woman tried to wedge her fingers under the rubber cord while flailing with her pistol. Ramona slammed her against the divider and then against the wall, but the metahuman bucked like a bronco. Hold still, damn you! Ramona panted. The effort to keep the cord taut made her ribs feel as though they were cracking further. Valkyrie found her footing and lashed out at Ramona. Her strength broken, she staggered back. The metahuman clawed at her throat, gasping for air, but her eyes promised death to the detective. Ramona grabbed the laser printer, a nice, heavy, outdated model, and threw it at Valkyrie's head with an enormous crash. The impact knocked the metahuman down. Ramona ran for it, digging the gun out of her pocket. I should have put a bullet between Valkyrie's eyes when I had the chance. Why didn't I? The opportunity had passed. The metallic taste in her mouth gave her the reason. She was on the verge of mind-bending panic. Homicide scene she could handle. Watching it take place, over and over, spooked her badly. She reached the other end of the room at last. Valkyrie had to be seconds behind her at most, yet Ramona had exhausted her will to fight. Now she was fully in flight mode. A wide, thin-fingered hand threw the door open in front of her. Her face collided with someone's stomach. Panic took over. She snatched the gun up to fire at the giant. The gun floated out of her hand and hovered in the air. "'Easy there,' a voice said above her. Ramona craned her neck. The speaker, whose stomach was in her face, was Southwind, one of the freakishly tall metahuman four winds. His large eyes with their oversized pupils made her feel as though flying saucers had landed. "'Get her,' she managed to say. With flawless timing, Valkyrie leapt onto the top of the cubicle, pistol in hand. Ramona had a priceless glimpse of the German's look of shock before Southwind sent forth a blast of telekinetic force that dashed her into the drop ceiling. Her legs dangled from the punctured drywall, twitching. "'You make it look so simple,' Ramona said. It's not, believe me. Southwind's tone was dark. We're trying to flank the Nazis in the building. You know where they are? I think so. Back that way. She pointed with her chin. At least twenty of them. Good. The alien-like metahuman gave her a wicked grin, showing small, precise teeth. I have some frustration to work off. Mercury dug his heels into the air as if it were astroturf. He did not possess the ability to fly, rather, the ability to stride through the air at incredible speeds. The difference between his power and propulsion from jets or rockets manifested himself in a remarkable turn ratio, as if he only ran along the ground at normal speed. This effect, he was sure, violated the laws of physics, like most of his friends. He took advantage of this quirk in his ability as the Nazi troopers fired bolt after bolt after him. 
Like a hummingbird, he could twitch out of the way of their beams as they flashed towards him. It had served as a distraction while his surviving comrades regrouped, but more Nazis in armor filled the echo grounds, adding their arm cannons to the forest of energy beams. Ten became twenty, became fifty. He could no longer hold their attention. To give himself more time to anticipate the vector of the blasts, he gained altitude, driving his winged sandals into the air. Higher up, still flitting back and forth, he could see the spheroid war machines tearing at the walls of the research building with snake-like tentacles, delivery trucks disgorging more troopers, fire on the roof of the Echo Museum. His heart sank. The barrage diminished. Below, he saw two glowing forms dashing from trooper to trooper, leaving a wake of uprooted troopers. Blue beams chased the figures. Kid Zero. He had recovered and split into his two battle forms, Kid Plus and Kid Minus. Each one could deliver an atomic-powered punch and communicate with each other through some mental link. The two kids moved fast enough to evade the blast aimed at them. Eager for an earthbound target, the troopers concentrated their fire, often hitting each other. Chaos erupted, and the kids kept running and striking. Over the din, Mercury heard a voice call his name. He spotted a figure waving his arms from the shattered window of a corner office. He squinted against the glare of the hot summer sun, but could not make out the features of the man. Then an energy beam scraped against his nano-weave pants leg, sending him into a tailspin. Mercury raised his arms above his head and pivoted so that his feet pointed to the ground again. Air rushed past, but after a sickening, vertiginous moment, his feet found purchase in the sky. Power surged through his legs, and he ascended again before the beams of the troopers could complete their work. The spare moment this maneuver bought him gave him an opportunity to see the man in the window. This time, he recognized the face. His boss, Alex Tesla. Mercury was torn. Answer Tesla's summons or try to draw fire away from Kid Zero's atomic forms. Smoke and dust rose from the turf where the troopers ripped massive holes trying to tag the boy. In the second that he hesitated, Mercury saw Kid Minus, the dark form, trip on a divot in the ground. The troopers wasted no time in descending on him with mailed fists. Their armored shapes enveloped the glowing form. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw Kid Plus's energy aura turn white and expand. Without warning, a blinding light erupted from the pileup. Mercury threw a hand over his eyes. The flash had burned an after-image on his retina worse than glancing at the sun. A wave of heat hit him. The nano-weave fabric of his pants tensed. His exposed chest hair smoldered. Then the shock wave, followed by the immense roaring sound of the explosion itself, like the roar of a lion released from the cage of the sun. Carried by waves of sheer force, Mercury flew through the air like so much shrapnel. The sky no longer felt like his home. He had no control over his trajectory. The retinal image faded as his thoughts slowed into a thick morass. He was losing consciousness while airborne. The fall from this height would surely kill him. For a moment, a blackness as pure as the white light of the nuclear explosion swallowed him. But a shred of his consciousness remained alert and furious. These incongruous, armored barbarians had killed Kid Zero. A boy. His friend. Struck down without mercy. Mercury who styled himself on the messenger of the gods, had a message for the Nazi horde. Revenge. Weak but awake, he let his feet skid across the sky, slowing his fall. He arrived at a full stop on the main gate, where a dozen ship trucks with shredded sides had been abandoned.
the electric fence had been crushed under armored boot heels. A dead security guard, her face frozen in an expression of horror, laid in a crumpled heap in the middle of the road. A pool of green blood spread under the troll nearby. Disheartened, Mercury looked back at the Echo Campus. A miniature mushroom cloud reached toward the sky, enveloped by smoke and flames that silhouetted tall armored figures in flight. He judged that the blast had taken a large chunk out of the administration building, including the cafeteria where he had left his comrades, and left a crater in the ground where Kid Zero had fallen. Too steep a price to pay for victory, he thought. How many Echo operatives died in the first strike in that explosion? Dozens, at least. How could they let themselves be caught off guard? Oi, mate. The words issued from the ruins of the guard booth. A black-clad glove protruded from the rubble. Lend it and? Still aching, Mercury shouldered the slabs of concrete aside with the remains of his metahuman strength. The man underneath wore a black hood and echo uniform. His black raven wings bent at unnatural angles. Corby! Mercury hauled the wounded Englishman onto the street as gently as he could. Where's your squad? Dead. Bloody Nazis. Came out of the trucks, killed Miranda and the troll. Corby spit, a mixture of blood and saliva. Played skate with me. Can you move? I can't bloody fly. I suppose crawling's an option. He stared at the column of smoke in the center of the campus. What was that? It was Kid Zero. Corby cursed. Help me up. With a supporting arm, Corby limped over to the guard's crushed body and took her sidearm. Just point me in the right direction. A sense of doom came over Mercury. Small squad tactics he could handle, but this was all-out war, and he wanted guidance, too. Even the courage of Corby would be consumed by the inferno of violence before them. Yet what could they do? Then he remembered Tesla, trying to get his attention before the blast. Better yet, I'll take you there. He gripped Corby's uniform and took to the air, legs pumping hard in an airborne sprint. In moments they were over the crater. The shattered forms of Nazi troopers lined the sides. There was no sign of Kid Zero. Mercury guessed that the boy's unintentional suicide bombing had taken out a few dozen troopers, leaving scores more reorganizing on the lawn. A squad pressed into the gaping hole in the window where the cafeteria had been. He angled to the left, to Tesla's office window. They ducked the shards of broken glass that lined the window like jagged teeth. It was supposed to be bulletproof, like all the windows in the Echo Campus. Their booted feet crunched on the debris-strewn floor. Tesla was nowhere in sight. Alex? Heart in his throat. Mercury scanned the room for a bloody corpse. Corby nudged him. In there, maybe? A bookcase stood at an angle to its compatriots to reveal a narrow staircase, lit by dim fluorescent lights. Mercury peered down the space between the rails. This goes all the way down to the sub-basement. Some kind of escape tunnel? Corby limped over to the entrance. If it is, there are a lot of folks who could put it to use. That the Metas would have to cover that escape he left unsaid, though both men knew it. I can find out quick enough. Mercury vaulted over the rail, arms tight to his side. 
There was just enough clearance for him in the gap to drop down past the flights of stairs. As he approached the bottom, he churned his feet to gain purchase on the air. His last step, from two feet above a concrete floor, he took as though stepping off the stairwell itself. Beyond the stairwell, a door led to a small room glowing with multicolored lights from consoles up to the ceiling. Alex Tesla stood beside a chair with an elaborate helmet on his head. White noise growled out of a speaker mounted next to a view screen, on which flickered a stylized symbol of a star over an eye. He twisted dials and cursed between calls of, Uncle! Uncle! into thin air. We're not beaten yet, Mercury said to his back. Tesla whirled, pointing a needle-nosed, wicked-looking gun that Mercury had not seen in his hand. Fear and doubt played across Tesla's features. I, I thought you were killed. Helps to be airborne in shockwave, Mercury said. I'm pretty sturdy. He looked to the unfamiliar gun more closely. It resembled a prop from a Buck Rogers serial. Is this your secret armory? No, it's... The doubt returned, and Mercury recognized the look of a man scrambling for a plausible lie. It doesn't matter what you see if the fools kill us all. He pounded on the screen. Come on, answer! Mercury hesitated. The room offered no exits other than the door he had come through, so his hope for an escape tunnel was dashed. Frustration overcame his deference. What are you doing? You're needed out there. We're scattered all over the place, getting picked off like... Tesla cut him off with a hand. Metis can't... Interference... Metis? Mercury knew that word, but from where? Come in! Come in, please! Can you hear us? Send back up! Noise drowned Tesla out. He dashed the helmet to the ground with a curse and glared at Mercury. Did that get through? I don't know. The fools are jamming every frequency, even our secret ones. He paused, sizing Mercury up. We have to assume we're on our own. Um, yeah, listen, these fools, the Nazis, they're slaughtering us. Mach 2s, 3s, all going down. We have 200 metas in Atlanta. If we can just mount a counteroffensive... And how do you propose we do that? I can't even use my goddamn cell phone. Tesla scowled. It's worse than you think. Echo isn't the only target. They're torching the perimeter. Mercury gaped at him as the word sank in. The perimeter? How do you know? Never mind that. Although if you see Doc Bootstrap, kill him. There are too many innocent lives at stake to worry about the Echo Campus. Let them destroy it. We need our teams out on the 285. Tesla shoved the gun in his pocket and began to climb the stairs. Mercury followed him on the narrow stairway, although he could have floated to the top in a fraction of the time. Okay, how do we do that without radio contact? That's where you come in. Mercury, messenger of the gods. Comprehension dawned. Oh. Gunshots interspersed with incomprehensible cockney swearing echoed down the stairwell. An explosion sounded, followed by more gunshots. That's Corby. He must have found some targets. Then we'll take a shortcut. Tesla pressed a hand against a specific spot on the wall. The featureless concrete lit up with a web glowing of blue circuitry, the shape of a door to find itself. As it opened, they heard more gunfire and energy beams. I think we found the front line, Tesla said, retrieving his gun from his jacket. Mercury missed his sidearm and his caduceus. 
Is that little toy going to make a difference? Tesla almost grinned. You'd be surprised. Not today I won't. Firing her gun beside the towering four winds, Ramona had a deja vu sense from childhood that contrasted with the devastation they were creating. I see survivors, the meta named Northwind said. He had ceased his attacks, but the others continued the telekinetic barrage. The winds generated by the raw force kicked up dust clouds useful to the defenders, but the blasts only knocked over the troopers like bowling pins. They got back up and returned fire. Grab them, Southwind said. We'll cover you. That's right, Ramona remembered. Northwind is the damage control officer for their team. It's a little hot for rescue, big guy. She crouched behind a stand of marble planters that were, thank God, reinforced with rebar. They'll die. His face had become resolute. Kevin, wait, she's right. The biggest of the metas turned his head only for a moment. His basso voice resonated over the din. Let us lock them down first. There's no time. I need altitude. Northwind began to float, kicking up a breeze that ruffled Ramona's hair. Southwind grabbed his arm. Something in the gesture told her they were more than teammates. Listen to your goddamn brother for a change. Northwind shook free. Just cover me. Without waiting for confirmation, Northwind shot into the air. Southwind bellowed in frustration at him, then redirected his powers at the troopers. Ramona reloaded and joined in the shooting. Keep them occupied, damn it, Southwind said. He's a sitting duck up there. Northwind rose above the combatants, hands outstretched as if picking fruit in a market. Ramona saw a nearby body lift into the air and skitter across the floor to the metal staircase, where a pair of Echo Rescue paramedics received it and hustled it away from the battle. Another body followed, and another... She loaded her last clip of ammunition and stood to fire next to the other four winds. If anyone was a target right now, it was one of the eight-foot-tall metas, not the short, squat woman next to them. The Echo operatives on the other side of the room saw Northwind's rescue effort and stepped up their fire. A pair of Mach 2s with invulnerable hides charged the troopers, fists swinging. Ramona recognized one of the metas as Flack. The other showed silver skin under his Echo uniform. The troopers could not ignore the powerful metas closing in on their ranks. Blue beams lashed out at them. The silver-skinned meta found himself exposed to fire from two directions. Ramona fired at his attackers, a sick feeling growing in her stomach. Beams knocked him to the ground, where he struggled to rise. Trusting his comrades to suppress the troopers' fire, Northwind darted over the lobby now without making any effort to evade attacks. He swooped in low over piles of bodies. One in ten he seized in a telekinetic grip and gently floated out of the line of fire. Mock ops and Echo Rescue risked becoming targets to stand and pull the floaters to safety. South Wind and West Wind crossed into the open, more intent on knocking troopers over than doing actual damage. South Wind hovered near the ceiling. Ramona saw him wave his arms and shout something, but his words were lost in the chaos. Trouble, she told East Wind, using her chin to point to South Wind. The woman swore anxiously. Her elegant, alien features belied the bare coarseness of her words. The news could only be catastrophic, Ramona thought. What could be worse than a lobby full of Nazi troopers killing your friends? We should retreat, she said. Eastwind had not heard her. Retreat! We have to! Eastwind shook her head. Not leaving without my husband. 
I mean everyone. Damn it! She wanted to crawl under a rock and wait for the Nazis to go home. Southwind dove headfirst at them. Run! he yelled before pulling up to fly to Northwind's position. Ramona's eyes traced his path, and she saw the roof, fifty feet above them, torn asunder by vicious metallic tentacles. Skylights buckled and shattered, raining glass on them. Girders and chunks of concrete leaned in and collapsed. The administration building, designed to impress visitors rather than withstand punishment, crumbled. Above Ramona, gravity asserted itself with terrifying authority. Tons of rock and metal lost their support and fell towards her in what seemed to be slow motion. Oh, God, she breathed. As if united in thought, the four winds rose into the air and extended their arms to the onrushing debris. Wind howled around them. The fall of the wreckage slowed. Ramona stared, transfixed. Could the four winds' combined power hold up a building? Their arms wrapped around her waist and yanked. Her sidearm flew out of her hand as the scene receded. Someone moving faster than a human hauled her to the front entrance and let go. She tumbled to a halt next to a pair of legs as Mercury dashed through the air to grab Flack. The owner of the pair of legs helped her to her feet. We've got to get out, Alex Tesla said urgently. Ramona did not hesitate. She pushed the glass doors, miraculously intact, at least for the next ten seconds, and ran out into the daylight. The smoke-free air tasted as sweet as bourbon to her. She turned to see Mercury hurtling towards them with Flack in his arms. He was shouting at them. Air whooshed out of the doorway. Ramona threw Tesla to the ground and covered his body with her own, despite the sharp pain in her ribs. Mercury sailed past them and the ground floor of the Echo Administration building exploded in a deafening roar. Dust enveloped them in a daylight-defying cloud. The glass doors they had passed through moments ago showered on Ramona's back and cut at her exposed skin. She cried out in pain. For a moment, Ramona blanked out on everything but the pain from her lacerations. The screams of buried men and women reached her. She could hear a lone voice calling out the name Kevin over and over, sounding more distraught with every repetition. Lesser pieces of debris continued to hit the ground around them. Beneath her, Tesla squirmed and tried to rise. She pressed her hands against the ground to push herself away from him and from the broken glass. Mercury stood over her. He took her hand and lifted her to her feet as if she were a feather. Bloody cuts crisscrossed his bare chest, the blood mixing with dust. I'm okay, she said before he had asked. The sadness in his eyes was unbearable. Thanks. On impulse, she squeezed his hand and held it. Tesla dusted off his expensive suit as if his filthy hands could make a difference. His face was grim, determined. The gesture itself was an unconscious attempt to restore normality to their ordeal. Ramona found it touching. Alex, Mercury said, do you still want me to play messenger? More than ever, we need to concentrate our forces on the highway. The what? Ramona goggled at him. What highway? The Nazis are right past that pile of rubble. She pointed at the demolished building and the rising clouds of dust. Flat came up behind them. His black face shone with bruises. I ain't gonna retreat, he said wearily. I-285, the ring of fire. Tesla brought out a strange-looking pistol. Our first duty is to the citizens. The campus, we can write it off if we have to. And what about our people who are getting wiped out? Flack said. 
Tesla said nothing. He's right. Atlanta's depending on us. We can't dig a hole and hide in it. Mercury released her hand. We have to do what we can. I'm not sure I can do anything. I don't even have a gun anymore. I'm just a detective. Where are the Mach 3s? The Mach 4s? Aren't there a few in Atlanta? That spooky Greek lady, Amphi-something. I'll find them, Mercury said quickly. No, you won't. Atlanta has five million people. Are you planning to go door to door? Ramona blew air out of her cheeks. Without radio, we're screwed. Tesla's jaw dropped. He stared at her. What? Ramona demanded. Mach 4s. I know where one is. He turned east. He's not close. Fifteen miles at least. Who? The mountain. Flax snorted. The big guy in Stone Mountain? He's never left his hole where the Confederate memorial used to be. Before he smashed it. I hear he's clinically depressed, Ramona said. And he won't talk to anyone, Mercury said. That's true, Tesla admitted. But he's also a hundred feet tall. He could tilt the balance in our favor. Mercury rubbed his chin. Fifteen miles I can do in five minutes. With a passenger. He nodded. Maybe. Yes. Then you can take me to Stone Mountain before you go round up our troops. I'll order him out of hiding. No. Ramona stepped in front of her boss. Tesla raised an eyebrow. You're needed here, sir. You and that ray gun you keep waving around. I bet it's something special. She winked at him. Besides, depressed men don't want to be bossed around. They need to be cajoled. That's a job for a woman. Like in King Kong, Flack said. Damn right, she said. Tesla paused only for a moment. All right, get to it. Flack, you're with me. The two men spun on their heels and raced back into the dust cloud. Mercury and Ramona watched them disappear into the darkness. You ready? He asked, spreading his arms. Ramona straightened. Take me. I'm yours. Ramona pressed her head against Mercury's chest, squeezed her eyes shut, and tried not to scream, though in fact she could barely breathe, and every breath she did take cracked her abused ribs. Stars floated before her eyes. The wind roared in her ears and tore at her hair like a beast with a million claws. Mercury ran at full speed, nearly two hundred miles an hour, a thousand feet up. She could taste blood mixed with sweat and dust on his skin. Her eyes teared up every time she glanced at his face. It was a mask of concentration and strain. She dared not look down. So much for fantasy, she thought. In the movies, this kind of ordeal brings men and women together. Typical Ramona luck. This is the closest I'll ever get to him, and I can barely stay conscious. Mercury dipped his head down to shout over the din. Are you all right? Yes, she shouted, inches from his ear to be heard. I'm going to speed up. If you pass out, I'll wake you. Oh, great, she thought. Some first date. What? Just do it. She gripped his arms like a vice. The roar increased in volume to a howl straight out of hell. Ramona tried to breathe through her nose in the air pocket against his chest, but she swooned. Before she blacked out, she felt his arms squeeze her tighter.
Hey, hey, wake up. Come on. Ramona's eyes flew open. She lay on hot granite that seared her palms. The sun glared down behind Mercury's head, giving him a golden winged halo. Christ. She rolled over to shield her eyes. We made it. In record time. Congratulations. He felt her cheeks and her pulse in her neck. That was equivalent to riding a plane bareback. You're one tough chick. Next time I'll skip the window seat. Help me up. Ramona sat up painfully and grabbed his hand as her head spun. Ow, I need a cigarette. I hear that a lot. He winked at her and strode to the edge of the abutment. Stone Mountain was a barren chunk of granite shoved 800 feet up in the flat Georgian plain by ancient volcanic pressures. In the early 1900s, the Daughters of the Confederacy and the Ku Klux Klan raised funds to carve the world's largest bow relief into the side of Stone Mountain. Unsurprisingly, the subjects of the carving were the heroes of the losing side of the Civil War. Robert E. Lee, Jefferson Davis, and Stonewall Jackson, all mounted on horseback. Mercury peered over the edge of the gaping hole in the mountain where the monument had been. I don't see him. Ramona wobbled to her feet. He's probably sulking in there. Or asleep. There's no ladder. I'll fly you down. He scooped her up again and stepped onto air as if it were a staircase. I bet you get a lot of mileage out of that with the ladies. He laughed. You could say that. Other than getting shot at by Nazis, being a meta has advantages. Like being a god. I wouldn't know. They landed on the lip of the cave. The sunlight illuminated the first forty feet. Beyond was darkness. Wonderful, she said. I forgot my hard hat and lantern. Silly me. She dug around in her pocket for her lighter. This'll have to do. Just look for the giant made of stone. You can't miss him. Very funny. She paused. What are you waiting for? The clock's ticking. Mercury bit his lip. The thing is, you have no way down from here. If I don't make it... Ramona waved him off. If I can't convince him to return with me, I may as well rot up here. He nodded. All right, then. Wait. Thanks for the ride, handsome. Ramona stood on her tiptoes and planted a kiss on him. To her surprise, he kissed back, pulling her close. For a moment, she forgot about the agony in her chest, the death and destruction in the city, the horror of the invasion, and lost herself in the sensation of his lips. All of her desperation, fear, and despair went into him. They broke. She took a deep, creaky breath. Wow. Okay, get going. Mercury nodded at her, his cheeks red with a boyish blush. Good luck. He sprang into the air. With a single stride, he covered fifty feet. Ramona! She shouted after him. My name's Ramona! But he was already out of earshot. The Cyclopean tunnel curved to the left, out of the sunlight. Ramona paused for a minute to let her eyes adjust to the dark. Rumor had it that the mountain had dug his way out of the heart of Stone Mountain, where he had come to life. He was no supernatural creature, though. 
He had been an accountant or project manager or something mundane. No one knew what sparked his horrendous transformation. Ramona debated whether or not to announce herself. This was essentially his home. Would he resent her intrusion? Was she in danger? She resumed walking. The tunnel floor had been smooth before the bend. Here she began to see stones and boulders of increasing size. Deeper and deeper into the hole, the light faded rapidly. Ramona fingered her lighter but resisted pulling it out until absolutely necessary. She put a hand out to guide her along the wall. She felt it curve away from her. Had she entered a chamber? Suddenly, boulders blocked her way. The smallest was five feet tall. She clambered onto it and flicked her lighter. A rock slide of some sort had blocked off the tunnel. Oh, damn. 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 Tears welled up in her eyes. All that effort and the poor bastard had been buried in his own home. She had failed them all. The lighter sputtered and went out. Ramona sat on the boulder and let the dam break. Sobs racked her body. Never before had she felt so worthless. Her entire life had been an ongoing campaign to prove herself, especially when she hit puberty and began to feel self-conscious about her weight. The determination she first learned in the face of taunts and jeers had served her well in college and the police academy. As an adult with a badge, she felt strong, capable, proud of who she was. Appearances were superficial. Ramona could now make a difference in the world. Or at least, she thought she could, until the Nazis came to butcher her friends. The boulder moved. Only a few inches, but it jarred Ramona as though an earthquake had struck. She held her breath and waited for it to happen again. It did. And then the boulder lifted her into the air. The tunnel reverberated with the sound of rock grating against rock. Ramona worked at her lighter until the flint caught. The tiny flame cast enough light to illuminate the cavern. What she had believed was a rock slide formed itself into a head, shoulders, and arm. The head tilted ever so slowly to reveal a grotesquely massive face, fifteen feet from chin to brow. Eyes that glowed like a volcano regarded her. When the mountain blinked, it sounded like a car backing out of a gravel driveway. He extended the finger on which she stood before him and studied her as if she were a butterfly. Ramona's heart pounded. The mountain could have killed her with a casual gesture. In fact, he might do it accidentally. She fought down the urge to run. Hello there, she said. Her voice sounded tiny. She took a deep breath. Hello there, she shouted. The mountain's mouth opened. A blast of superheated air washed over her. A sound like a sonic boom shook the tunnel. She covered her ears. Then she realized he had said, Hello. Can you speak softer? She asked as loudly as she could. The head tilted. I can, the voice said, this time without the deafening volume, though she felt like she was having a conversation with a thunderstorm. Who are you? Echo Detective Ramona Ferrari. I take it you're the mountain? The giant shook, rocks falling from the cave walls. 
He was chuckling. Okay, that was a stupid question. Listen, there's an emergency. Echo needs you. The mountain stared at her without speaking. We're under attack. Nazis. I, I know it sounds crazy, but there are hundreds of them. They're big. I mean, not as big as you, but eight feet tall and heavily armored. Bullets won't hurt them. She waited for him to respond. After an awkward silence, she said, They're killing us out there. And they're on the perimeter, Tesla says, so civilians are dying too. It's a war. All-out war. Ramona took a breath. The mountain said nothing. Can you hear me? Yes. He rumbled. I feel like I'm babbling. Does this make any sense to you? I like it. Ramona blinked. What? The giant looked around the tunnel before resting his eyes on Ramona again. First person to talk to me in a year. Really? I like your voice. Oh. She cleared her throat. But did you understand what I said about the Nazis? Yes. Oh, good. Then you'll come back to Echo with me? No. Ramona gaped at him. No! People are dying! Echo operatives! Don't care. You... don't care? Her face flushed. What kind of monster are you? The giant's glowing eyes stared at her. His silence spoke volumes. Oh, right. A giant rock monster. She remembered what she'd told Tesla about cajoling the reclusive Mach 4. I'm sorry. You have to understand, I've just come from a war zone. It's a miracle I'm still alive. If it weren't for my friends, I wouldn't be here at all. But you have a right not to care. You're safe here. Alone. She nodded. I'm sure. You don't exactly roll out the red carpet for guests. Does Echo even look in on you? By helicopter. Sure. That makes sense, since there's no way to get up here otherwise. She made a show of inspecting the chamber. Nice place you have here. Cozy. How's the TV reception? The finger shifted, knocking her off balance. Mocking me, the mountain said. You're goddamn right I am. You're worse than a teenager moping in your room. She pointed towards the mouth of the cave. I just told you people are dying as we speak, and you don't care because you're lonely. How the hell should I take that? You don't understand. Honey, no one understands what it's like to be a walking office building but you. That's a given. Now what are you going to do about it? Nothing. I see that now. Ramona judged the fall from his finger to be ten feet. Put me down. The mountain lowered his finger. She clambered off. I need to get back to HQ. You're of no use to me. 
Ramona turned her back on the giant and walked towards the light. She heard him shift behind her. Divorced. She stopped, but didn't reply. Wife divorced me. After this. Ramona began to walk again. She heard more movement, like a dozen sidewalks buckling. Lost everything. You're still alive, she said over her shoulder. That's more than a lot of people can say for themselves today. Wait. I can't talk anymore. I have to figure out a way down this mountain. Ramona walked to the lip of the hole. The mountain crawled behind her. The sound of so much mass in motion elicited a primal fight-or-flight response from her, like a deer fleeing an avalanche. Stone Mountain looked out upon the city. Atlanta burned. Smoke rose from a dozen conflagrations. One of them was Echo, she realized. The giant groaned when he came into the opening. Fire, he said. Brilliant observation, Ramona said. Are you going to help me down or do I have to turn into a mountain goat? He had not taken his eyes from the view. Long way, he said. Long way down, she agreed. Long way to Atlanta, the giant said firmly. There was a hardness in his voice that was not present before. Ramona turned to face him. You know, the best cure from the blues is to work out your frustration, she said, jerking her thumb at the city. I bet you have a lot of rage to vent. I do. The giant laid his palm down on the cave floor. Ramona mounted it. The mountain brought his hand up so that she could safely climb onto his shoulder. The mountain lowered himself from his den. His first step towards Atlanta covered twenty yards and nearly crushed a parked SUV. Looking out over the forest and the highway beyond, Ramona realized she had a whole new problem. How to get a ten-story stone giant through an urban area without killing anyone. Watch your step, Ramona yelled up to his ear. We have a lot of distance to cover. If the city wasn't under attack by Nazis, Ramona thought, they'd be mobilizing the National Guard against us right now. The mountain took long strides, long meaning he covered nearly fifty feet a step. From her perch on his shoulder, she got the distinct impression that she had been drafted for a Godzilla movie. Every step the giant took jeopardized something. A house, a car, trees, a swimming pool. He left five-foot-deep indentations in the ground as he passed. The damages incurred by his stroll would cost the city millions of dollars and give insurance companies epileptic fits. People screamed and ran at the sight of him. Watch out for the houses, she called to him. Oh, crap, dog at twelve o'clock. Um, damn. She sighed as she spotted a flattened German shepherd in a bus-sized footprint. Poor pooch. Hey, mountain, hey, damn it, slow down. Thought it was war, he said, but he stopped. Atlantans gathered at a respectable distance and clutched each other in fear. Not on them, she pointed at the crowds. You have to be more careful. 
Echo prevents civilian deaths, not causes them. Hard, he said. She understood what he meant. As they had left the park, Atlanta's urban sprawl took over. There was literally nowhere he could step without crushing someone. The All-Star game had jammed the highways to bursting, so those were out. Go back. He sounded like a despondent foghorn. No, no, let me think. What she needed was a megaphone to warn people in their path. I got it. Mountain. Wait, calling you that sounds stupid. We're co-workers. What's your real name? The giant tilted his head. Bill, he said. Okay, Bill, remember when you nearly deafened me for life in that cave? Now's the time to make use of those lungs, or whatever it is you have in there. What do I say? Anything. We just want to clear a path. Hmm. Ramona edged away from his mouth and covered her ears. Ready, she said. She felt the giant's chest expand. Coming through, he announced with the force of a rocket engine. Despite being behind the sound wave, Ramona's ears rang. The mountain looked down upon his fellow citizens as they ran in panic. He huffed, and Ramona recognized his geologic-sized chuckle. He took a careful first step in an abandoned front lawn. Stay in your homes, he said. It made sense. A house was easier to avoid than a tiny dot of a human. Watch out for dogs, Ramona said. I like dogs. The mountain hunched over, carefully, so as not to dislodge his passenger, and studied the ground as he chose his steps. Thus they made steady, and loud, progress through the Atlanta suburbs. When they reached Tucker, on the cusp of I-285, they got a glimpse of the white-hot thermite fires being sprayed by the spheroid war machines. The hellish-orange glow of the war machine's anti-gravity propulsion systems, a technology Ramona had not believed possible, lit the highway under the vast ceiling of smoke like a vision of hell. The mountain paused. Fight them? he asked. Ramona bit her lip. Keep going. If we can free up the Echo Campus, every goddamn meta in there can give those bastards the fight of their lives. Assuming there's anyone left alive at headquarters, she thought, but didn't mention. She prayed she was right about the rationale for sending him into the city proper. Come back, he said, and began his careful walk again, punctuated by bellowed warnings. They moved south, avoiding the perimeter until they had to cross it. Inside the perimeter, houses were packed too closely together for the mountain to traverse safely. Three war machines peeled away from the highway and approached them. Ramona remembered what they had done to the Echo Administration building. Bill! Bogey's at five o'clock! Do you have I-beams or something? The mountain plucked Ramona off his shoulder and concealed her in his palm. With the other hand, he swatted at the war machine closest. It exploded into flames and debris. The other two veered away and kept a respectable distance. Good enough! She had to shout at the top of her lungs now that she was so far from his ear. We're close! Keep going! 
The mountain gave each of the war machines a dirty look and resumed walking towards a central column of smoke in the distance. Echo headquarters. The mountain began to take larger steps, using city streets as a pathway. He shouted his warning repeatedly. Ramona put fingers in her ears and grinned like a tank commander homing in on enemy troops. Someone as big as the mountain didn't need the element of surprise. Right about now, she figured, those chrome bastards should be wondering what all that noise is. They came into visual range of the Echo Campus. A dozen war machines hovered in the sky above. Blue beams launched into the sky at a handful of flying heroes. Fires from the colossal explosion had spread to the security building and to the hangars. Echo Mach 4, the mountain, reporting for duty! The giant roared, making his first step onto the grounds of the Echo Campus one that crushed a dozen Nazi troopers. Ramona laughed out loud. She stopped laughing as the Nazis turned their beams from human-sized targets and aimed for the walking mountain that approached them. Each beam tore a chunk of the size of her head out of the giant stony hide. A few beams struck the hand she crouched in. The giant sank to his knees. She held onto his thumb, horrified that she had overestimated his resistance to pain. He was a walking target. Oh no, Bill, she said. But the giant merely laid his hand flat on the ground furthest from the Nazis and opened it to let her disembark. Now she understood. He wanted two hands for fighting. She waved a fist at him. Sick him, buddy! The giant took advantage of his proximity to the ground to sweep up an armful of Nazi troopers and send them sprawling, then to pound them into the dirt like a child torturing ants. With the aid of the mountain, the battle quickly swung in Echo's favor. The Nazis could not ignore the hundred-foot stone giant stomping on them with gusto, leaving the remaining Echo personnel to take aim for vulnerable knee and arm joints. Three of the four winds led the final charge against the Nazis. Southwind, in particular, blasted at them with desperate brutality, screaming as he did. The sight of the towering, alien-like beings cutting invisible swaths through the troopers was terrible to behold. Ramona did not see the Commandant or Valkyrie again. Not that she minded. She did find Tesla again. He crouched behind the toppled wall and picked off troopers with his tiny ray gun. The beam in emitted heated their armor to a red-hot glow until the metal melted. The men inside the armor writhed in pain. He exchanged winks with her and kept firing. A figure approached Ramona out of the smoke. She carried two rifles. Midori! Ramona hugged the woman fiercely. Midori laughed with delight. You did it! You did it! He's the one doing it. I just guilt-tripped him into beating up some jerks. The perfect boyfriend, Midori said, handing her a rifle. Oh, the stories I could tell you. Ramona scanned the sky for a running figure. What's this for? Atlanta SWAT stopped by with a tip. Shoot for the knees. Armor-piercing rounds. My own Teflon recipe. Mercury darted across the sky, stopping above Tesla's head and leaning in for a quick consultation. For a brief moment, he met Ramona's gaze before zooming away. Ramona loaded the rifle with Midori's special brew and took aim at a retreating Nazi trooper. Her first bullet caught him right in the kneecap. He staggered and fell. A warm feeling of vindictiveness spread from her belly to her grin. The day was improving, after all.
wait is over. The first book of Steve Livy's Aquapura trilogy is available now from Subatomic Books. Meet Crixisoran, a plumber on an epic odyssey of redemption through an ancient world. Want to try before you buy? Listen to the free audiobook or download the free ebook or subscribe to a chapter a day through your email. Log on to www.aquapuratrilogy.com for more information. Echo is hiring. Log on to www.echometahumans.com and join the Echo Mock Street team. Your mission? Spread the word about the Secret World Chronicle.